Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com.au. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com. In this episode, we spoke with Martin North. Martin is the Principal of Digital Finance Analytics at Boutique Research Analysis and Consulting Firm. This former consultant of Booz Allen and Fujitsu Australia pedigree is well known for his level-headed approach to financial markets and the economy. His Walk the World channel on YouTube is a must for astute economy watchers in Australia and is, I would say, undoubtedly one of my favorite economics-type channels on YouTube at the moment. His commentary is highly regarded across the mainstream media, including the AFR, Sydney Morning Herald, the ABC, Nine News, and much more. This is a great chat. We covered a lot, including growing up in the UK and early memories, his career path and insight into corporate consulting, the state of Australia's economy and housing sector, productive versus non-value-adding investments, what he'd do if he had 90 days or on his first 90 days as Prime Minister and his take on crypto as well. If you like the episode, do leave us a rating on your podcast app or share with your friends by taking a screenshot and posting on your Instagram story, tagging at GoMarkets. Show notes and all previous guests are at gomarkets.com slash podcast. With that being said, let's get into this episode with Martin North. Martin. How are things today? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, it's a rather chilly morning here down in uh, the Illawarra, but uh, a lot of international and financial news and local financial news, so there's never a dull moment. <laughs> now, I was, um, I was looking back through your history. <laughs> um, it's quite, quite interesting in terms of your background and, and what you actually studied, but I had this thought because I didn't even realize you had much of an accent, but did you grow up in the UK? Yes, that's right. So I came out to here in 95, but uh, spent the first part of my uh, career in London. And prior to that, studied, would you believe, philosophy. So, um, yes. Exactly. That's interesting route. <laughs> very, very interesting. I mean, what's sort of the earliest memory you have of your, of your childhood? Well, uh, living in the UK, we actually spent quite a lot of our young childhood down in Cornwall, which is right down in the southwest of England. So I can actually remember going to the beach when I was four, five, six, uh, and uh, being amazed by the uh, strength of the waves and you know the, the rugged uh, coastal scenery of southwestern England. So that that is a memory that stays with me, and I guess that's probably why I quite like the Illawarra coast because it's uh, not a million miles away. In terms of uh, look, if a long, long way in terms of geography, <laughs> it's um, it's definitely a beautiful part of the world. My fiance's 
mother is from uh, Yorkshire, mm. and uh, yeah, we've been down to to Cornwall. It's just uh, it's a really fascinating place. I don't, I don't think many many Australians when they get over to the UK they they get down there that much. It's sort of yeah. the cliche London Edinburgh type <laughs> trip, but well, um, it's a long way down. You know, another two hundred miles. But the point is, it's got a really interesting. Uh, industrial history, right? So whilst uh, Cornwall may be regarded very much now as a a place to go visit and see the sun and the sea and the sand, its industrial history is much interesting because effectively it was the centrepiece of uh, tin mining and, uh, you know, the expertise from those miners in Cornwall, you know, 100, 150, 200 years ago, came out to Australia and to New Zealand and all places around the world because they had amazing capability in terms of building deep mines and uh, running big steam engines. And I'm really fascinated by that industrial history as well. Wow. Yeah, I'd, I'd never even thought about that perspective because when we went there, it was down in, um, you know, St. Ives and then there's places like, God, I feel like his name is Rick, Rick Stein. Am I thinking of the, the, the famous chef and he's got like, there's a town and they, yeah. they name it after him and he owns like seven of the restaurants down there. But that's sort of the cliche thing, right? You think <laughs> exactly. Coastal villages, fishing, yeah. some guy pouring a pint down at the pub and that's yeah. about it. Well, you know, there's, there's an amazing mine which is not operative now, but actually it was built right on the cliffs on the north side and uh, it went down below sea level and then went out under the sea for you know, a considerable distance and they had in ter- terrible time with flooding and, you know, the, the life that people had there is just a remarkable story. Talk about rugged. <laughs> what, what did you want to be as a kid? You know, we, we, we spoke about the fact that you studied uh, philosophy. Hmm. How, how did it get into, you know, like where did that come about as a, as a young lad? Well, I guess um, my, my family has always been quite religious and I, I sort of was a bit sceptical about all of this and I, started, well, I wanted to ask why questions a lot. And of course, philosophy allows you to, to ask why questions. And also, mm-hmm. my, my father was a, was a banker, right? And the one thing I never wanted to do was to touch finance, right? <laughs> <laughs> Funny how it ends up. Um, but, but the philosophy thing was really about, I wanted to ask that question beyond the obvious question, you know, why, why are things the way they are and, and what's underpinning what is, the, if you like, the superficial view of what's going on? And in a way, that's what I do now because DFA is trying to ask that deeper question, which is what's really going on? You know, what are the real agendas and what's the real world view that's underpinning the way that the, um, the, the, the current situation is playing out? So that's sort of that side of things. In terms of the finance stream, I did philosophy and then got to uh, the end of a postgraduate degree and basically I had to make a decision. Do I go into academia? I could have. Or do I do something else? And at that point, it was hard to find a job. But funnily enough, the finance sector were recruiting. So I went into the finance sector, but carrying this questioning why, why, why with me. And that really has been with me right the way through my career. I spent many years in banking. I spent a number of years consulting to banking. But it's always been the deep questions which I want to get to. Yeah, and I, I can see how it's funny though. You mentioned about your your father and his experience in banking, and how mm. more and more over time we realise we become much more like our parents. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but Scary I, I thought, find but true. <laughs> it is very, very true. I mean, you had a, you've had a quite a fascinating career as a consultant, 
um, and now as principal for for DFA. Hmm. I mean, you worked at Booz Allen. You worked. At, you basically ran Fujitsu Australia Consulting Group as one of the MDs. I'm guessing there. Hmm. Um, as you said, you you sort of fell into this corporate consulting world, and I'm, I'm guessing you focus on more of the finance side. As you know, you look back at your time as a consultant for these larger organizations, what's sort of the most intriguing insight from that period of your life? Well, for me, it was really interesting how actually consultants, although they were used by large organizations, um, they were used without real anger and intent in terms of the outcomes. So a lot of it at the time, it was decisions that they wanted to take, but they needed the justification to take them, or they wanted some advice, but actually that advice advice was hardly ever used. So I got yeah. very skeptical of the corporate consulting um, regimes that exist, and the fact that actually the corporate consultants and the corporates are on the same side of the fence and they sort of tend to sort of cozy up together, right? But if you start talking about some of the radical challenges that, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I could see were coming through the finance sector, so digitalization, you know, the rise of new international players, the internet, all of those things. Um, frankly, a lot of the major players just didn't want to hear. They wanted to just carry on with the old business models. And so whilst you could sort of show them some of the things that were developing, the fact of the matter was it really made no difference to the way that they ran their business day in and day out, you know. Mm. And, you know, when I was working for a number of organizations in the late 90s into 2000s and I was talking to them about the internet and what you could do with the internet and how it could change the way that you serviced customers and, you know, it was like, yeah, but our customers never want to do that. You know, they'll always um, come to the <laughs> branch. They'll always, uh, you know, buy mortgages from mortgage brokers. And I'm thinking, yeah, you don't get it, right? You don't understand. And, and, and the fundamental insight that I've got is that I look at things from a household end rather than from a product push end, right? So most of the clients that I worked with were interested of pushing products out into the market and hoping they'd stick, right? Whereas I come from the customer end, the voice of the customer, what, the, what is the customer doing? What do they want to do? How are they thinking about things? And then you go through from there. And boy, that changes the scenery dramatically. And what it means is that you start asking a bunch of different questions, which is what do consumers want? How are they thinking? You know, where are they going to invest their money, you know, where are they going to get their mortgage from? So it really is a very different model. And I think that if the first takeout is the the limitations of corporate consulting, the second one is the customer is at the center rather than the periphery. And that is the fundamental insight, which frankly, I, I, I run to when I come to DFA and it drives the, the way I do things here. So all my surveys and everything else is looking at it from a customer end. So what's the point of corporate consultants, do you think? Is it just to reaffirm beliefs? Yeah, I think very much, very largely. And if you look in the in the public sector particularly, they want somebody to basically confirm that they're doing the right <laughs> thing, you know, because they might get blamed. Uh, and, you know, there's a massive amount of money being paid to corporate consultants by governments, state and federal. It's a disgrace because they never get results. And I remember consulting to one client, I won't say who it is, but a major corporate client. And they proudly showed me the 15 consulting reports that I had over 10 years, right, up on a shelf, yeah. you, know, you know, two inches thick each, right? And I asked the question, so what difference did it make? And basically, the answer was, it made no difference. <laughs> it just reaffirmed their opinion. It does. You know, I've, I've, yep. I've always, always found that so fascinating. <laughs> now, many people will know you as the man who says today and then gives them amazing analytics, at least I, I believe, on the state of the, the local economy from your YouTube page. But I think most of your work is primarily as a boutique research and, and doing analysis and consulting 
I know you, you've, as you said before, you've got this focus on financial services. I was just intrigued as to, you know, your first video on YouTube was about three years ago, I think. How has that changed the way that you do work, but also the way that you, I guess, research or share information over the last year? Yeah, well, it's it's very interesting. So I started running these um, household surveys, so 52,000 households only, 4,000 a month, right? We've been doing it for many years now. In in the early 2000s, we started. And those insights basically flowed into my consulting and advisory service. I used them firstly in the context of Fujitsu when I was there, but then beyond that in, in DFA. So a lot of the work that I was doing was trying to share the insights from a consumer perspective into clients who may or may not be interested. But then Mm -hmm. I started to realize that there were some very significant factors in play, which really the mainstream media weren't actually highlighting. And, you know, there is a whole new narrative to be uh, painted in terms of what's really going on. I thought, well, that's interesting. So I started doing a blog, and I started that about seven or eight years ago. So the DFA blog has been running for a long, long time. And, and then a couple of people said to me, well, you know, you might want to consider doing, um, um, you know, podcasts or, or videos. And I thought, oh, goodness me, you know, because I'm actually quite interested in, in the technical side and TV. And I've always done TV interviews for years and years and years, you know. And, in fact, I was media trained in the UK. So I've always had a, a fascination with, uh, with media. And so it sort of came together a little bit. And I started to realize that the insights that I was drawing from my own analysis, because basically the three things I do, I do the surveys, I suck in information from all over the world as best able I can, and then I try to make sense of it through my modeling. So that's, that's essentially the, the basis of the business, right? So three or four years ago, pretty much all of the revenue for this was coming through from doing consulting and selling data to individual clients. Now, that's changed a little bit because as I've started to build up the YouTube channel, I've started to be able to create an additional revenue source through YouTube and through Patreon, which is some people actually support me directly. And so that allows me to put more of my focus in making more content. And what I've discovered is that actually I have a bigger influence through my YouTube channel and through the podcasts um, than I do directly through the consulting and advisory because, you know, the consulting advisory still goes on. I still do some of that. So the, yeah. the pendulum has swung towards social media. It's swung towards focusing on making supremely good content you know and i hope that people who follow the youtube channel will 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 accept that one the production values are pretty good in terms of the quality but also the the analysts analytics and insights because what i'm trying to do is to put over clear data informed opinions right now there are a whole bunch of other people out there on youtube and you know some of them will sit in front of a pc screen and take one article and just waffle through it right but I think they're missing the sort of the, you know, the, the big picture. So what I try to do is to contextualize the analysis I do in the context of an overall narrative around the debt issues that we have in Australia, household finances and the burden that households are in, the large scale impact that the finance sector has now on our overall economy and, you know, the risks that are involved in all of that. And then put that as a sort of an overwrapper, if you like, around the individual analysis that I do. So you'll get data from me, you'll get insight from me, you'll get some of my opinions, although I try to keep them as balanced as I can. And then the other side of it was I started to realize that it would be really good if I could start getting other voices to sort of come in onto the channel too. So what I've also started to do is now create a bit of a network of, of people who have an interest in, in sharing the views around property and finance and those sorts of things. And, you know, I've got mortgage brokers and I've got financial advisors and I've got people in the property sector and you know, economists and a few other people. And I also tried to get 
voices from the property enthusiasm sector as well, right? So, because I really wanted to try and, you know, create a, a, a canvas from soup to nuts across the spectrum, right? But what's interesting is that none of those guys wanted to come and debate with me. So, it's always been a little bit um, of a, okay, so we're on the debt's a problem, household debt is very high, we've got risks, and, you know, let's think about it, rather than property's great, and you always make um, returns on property, and they double every seven years, which is what a lot of other people tend, tend to say, right? So, that, But that's not del a deliberate strategy on my part, it's just that happenstance is that the other side of the, um, you know, debate don't actually want to directly engage with me, which I find quite yeah. interesting. Well, it, what's interesting about what you've just said is it's it's so clear to me that as as social media on and new forms of media have made the end consumer, the retail consumer, let's say, more informed, more powerful in the relationship, and that sort of aligned better with what you really want, which is looking at that consumer, as you as you said earlier. So. I can see now how in the long term, because that, that's what I was also intrigued by, what does the future for DFA hmm. look like? And it sort of seems to me as time goes on, you get more and more focused to that end consumer. I don't know if you'd agree on that. No, I do. And what I find the most fascinating and valuable part is not my contributions through the YouTube, but actually the the conversations that go on in the discussion. So I, I, I do live streams. I do them one, once a month, hour and a half you know, take questions and answers. We have some amazing discussions on, on various things. And the discussions in the YouTube channel uh, after the posts, and I, I learn a whole lot of stuff from that. I've also got now people who send me insights. They send me stories about what's going on in their neck of the woods, um, you know, even little videos and things. So it really has become a little bit of a network now of, of trying to portray for everybody a picture, right? Or maybe an alternative picture, but I think it's an important picture. And it's an important one because actually, if you look at the mainstream media and the way that they tend to report issues, they tend to be very, very individual issue focused. You know, so they might talk about housing affordability one day or whatever. But there's no overarching narrative around um, contextualizing that, you know, more broadly. And so what I've tried to do is to, is to build that community, share those insights. And, you know, it really has been a remarkable learning experience for me. And I really appreciate all those who have subscribed and all those who comment. We get a few nutters, of course, you know, as you, as you expect, <laughs> you always would. But, but you know, 99.9% .9 of the comments are actually really worth reading. And they are remarkable. Yeah, and I, I'd agree with that. I think the good thing about that is that this network allows you to be challenged by people that are sort of in a similar sphere but may not have the exact same belief or be in the exact same bubble as you, whereas hmm. in a lot of mainstream media, a lot of the time you're just stuck with people who have the exact same beliefs. So it sort of just becomes an echo chamber. Well, that's right. Now, echo chamber is a, is a, is a real concern. And of course, there's a lot of social media is an echo chamber. You know, you'll, you'll get more and more. Oh, all the time. Yeah. But, but what I find interesting is you, you talked about the system of belief, right? That goes back to my philosophy, right? There is a worldview that everybody implicitly has about the way things work. Right, and that mm. worldview is essentially one which is propagated through the mainstream media, through the politics, and everything else. But what if that worldview is actually not complete and is actually myopic? Now, I haven't happened to have the view that we're missing some really important big picture themes here, and as a result of that, we might try to do the right thing, both from a political sense and from an economic sense. But because the worldview is flawed, we actually end up getting the wrong outcomes. And so that's really what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the 
you know, alternative way of thinking about the universe and about you know how things work and about the way that economics works and around the way that finance works. And you know, to, to put it bluntly, we've got to the point now where the financialization of society is huge to the point that it actually locks out other more productive uses of, of finance. It effectively has become the end in itself. And therefore, we've got the sort of the 1% who have massive benefits from it, but the rest of society actually is not benefiting as much as they should, I think. Yeah, and I think that's been a core aspect of, of where your coverage looks at. I was just, before we jump onto that, I'm curious, what does your actual day-to-day look like? What do you get up to each day? <laughs> well, it's pretty complicated. So I, I'm up quite early. Um, I tend to catch up overnight, you know, first thing in the morning and see what's happened internationally. Um, I've got a few different data, data feeds. Luckily, I'm based uh, at a rather nice little place um, near the coast. So I'll, I'll spend a bit of time looking at it and I'll take the dogs out for an early morning walk and then I'll come back and I'll do some analysis and do some, you know, modelling and updating and that sort of thing. Probably have a few conversations during the day. Mates maybe talk to the media and they might do a media interview. They quite often come down here and, uh, you know, interview me for the mainstream, which is, is quite nice. Um, but I've also got the technology side of it as well. So that takes a bit of my time too in terms of just making sure that the, you know, the screens are working and everything's up to date and the internet's mm. there and all those sort of things. By the way, the MBN is great. I, I, I couldn't do what I do without the <laughs> right. MBN. It's made a huge difference. Um, then I'll, you know, take a bit of time off during the, um, the you know, the, some of the day. But in, towards the later part of the day, then I'll come back and record the today's show i do put a show out every day uh, even if it's a short one it doesn't take too long to do generally because i've pretty much decided what i'm going to talk about so i'll record that edit it put it up and um you know seven eight nine o'clock at night i'll pretty much finish and um check out till the next morning wow that's that's a big day i mean you know to do that video daily as well is is quite an effort i, I just speaking on my own part of running podcasts or running a lot of video related stuff the you know sometimes the amount of editing that can go into it can be can be quite a lot now a major component of your work is is covering the state of the economy and the financial sector i think in the last few years more of more of that has involved the housing market as it's just intrinsically involved in the financial sector hmm. i think we we're, we're post royal commission now the wider public has seen coverage of the hubris of the the big four and household habits with cheap credit. You know, we, you've spoken many, many times about liar loans, banker behavior, negative equities, the new catchphrase that everyone talks about. You know, you've been on 60 Minutes, ABC, etc. How do you see today the state of the economy in Australia? Yeah, well, if you start broadly, you know, the GDP number isn't very, very positive and you know, is GDP a good measure of uh, an econo- economy's performance? Probably not, no. but it's the one that tends to be used. Um, but if you look at it in, in segments, right, we know that we are being supported by a very, very high iron ore price. It's 110 or something at the moment, massive, right? And that has actually created a windfall uh, profit into Australia, right? We know that the government has invested both at the state and federal level, big in infrastructure, so the GDP is supported by infrastructure. But business investment is quite low, and half of the economy is actually supported by consumers and their consumer spending. Now, of course, that's Mm -hmm. dropped significantly. And the question is, why is that? Right, And if you actually start looking at that, then you discover that, well, it's partly because incomes have been very flat for a long period of time. The cost of living are rising. Um, They've got bigger mortgages than they used to have. And so many households are finding it difficult to maintain those mortgage repayments. And so they're raiding their savings and trying to basically get by. Now, that's sort of the the big picture, right? Now, 
if you go back a bit and say, well, okay, so what's different now compared with previously? Well, the answer was that it was the housing sector and it was the growth in lending and it was the growth in um, loans to consumers directly and indirectly that basically supported household consumption for a decade. Now, that's why we've got some of the highest debted households in the world. That's why we've got people who are really struggling. You know, about 30% of households are in what I call mortgage stress. They're having difficulty making those repayments. And, and what it means is that without a circuit breaker, which would have to be significant income growth, we are boxing ourselves into a very big corner. Now, there is an argument to say that we've let house prices run way too high, that the Reserve Bank cut interest rates way too low, the lending standards were way too loose, and lots of people got mortgages they should never have got. And it's a chase-your-tail conversation, right? Because as prices go up, you can actually get bigger mortgages. As bigger mortgages are written, prices go up. So it's a virtuous circle up, but the reverse is also true. And we've got to the point now close to what I call peak debt, I think, which is how much debt can the household sector support in Australia on, on the current settings? Now, Unfortunately, what we're now seeing post the election is another circuit round of basically, let's lend the household some more, let's make lending easier, let's get the housing sector back up again, because effectively the people in power want to see home prices rise, not fall, because mm. as home prices fall, the wealth effect goes negative, as the house prices fall, the risks on the banks increase, as house prices fall, uh, more property investors have got to try and sell, so it becomes mutually reinforcing on the downside, right? So the question then becomes, if we are successful in turning that around and allowing home prices to start rising again and we convince people to go back into the market, first-time buyers come in with those wonderful incentives and investors come back in because probably prices are going to rise again, all we're doing is we're postponing the inevitable crisis, which is that the debt is too big relative to our ability to service it. Now, obviously, the argument goes, is well, if you keep interest rates really, really low, then people can borrow more, right? And of course, there are people out there who say, well, therefore, there's no issue. Although, actually, if you look carefully, even, to, even with interest rates so low, the amount of income going to service debt is higher than it was a few years ago. But of course, the fact of the matter is, there is a point at which you cannot take interest rates any lower without breaking the economic system or doing QE or you know, some other strategies that basically distorts the economy even more. And it takes us into a, a, a range of options similar to what the US did a decade plus ago. But mm. here's the thing. The US responded to a major financial international crisis in 2007, right? House prices continued to fall until 2010. And then they did the QE and everything else, and they started to come back. And house prices in the US have just pretty much come back up to where they were now in 2007. Now, we are talking about, in Australia, stimulating our economy through the housing sector and through household uh, finances when our economy is weaker, but we're not in a crisis yet. Or maybe we are in a crisis, but you know, certainly pre the election, everybody said, no, we aren't in a crisis, everything's wonderful. Great numbers on the employment front, you know, everything's absolutely fine. Um, I think our economy is probably more wobbly than people want to admit. I think that we are over-reliant on the resource sector and particularly the iron ore price. If that comes back, then we've got a major issue. Although hopefully with um, Brazil still not shipping iron ore out and China still wanting to uh, take our iron ore, there's perhaps a bit of, of leeway there. But we are in a very precarious situation insofar that the basis of our economy is very narrow. We've got basically the resource sector. Agriculture, of course, is being hit by the drought, so that's another factor to sort of bear in mind. And the household sector is under pressure at the moment. So the question then becomes is, 
what do we do? You know, do we effectively turn the um, dial up to 11 again and try and get the housing market to take off again and get more people back in the market and spend even more of their income on supporting those those mortgages? Is that the right strategy? Or do we need to find a plan B, which is to say we need to find a different investment path in Australia and we actually invest in productive businesses and productive activities other than just build more resource, um, uh, you know, just build me resource operations that suck it out the ground or just throw it, throw it overseas. I'm looking for added, added value alternatives. And it's that innovation gap that I'm really frustrated about because I think we've missed the opportunity. A decade ago, when we had all of that income in from the mining boom, we should have, like Norway did, we should have put it to good use. We didn't. We just mm. basically gave it away as tax handouts. And we haven't learned the lesson of history that we need an economy which is broader-based. We can't just rely on you know, the resource set, in my view. And, of course, then you have things like climate change and some of those other factors over the top, which suggests that there is going to be more uncertainty ahead. And then the final point to make is, if the international situation continues to weaken, I'm thinking of the trade wars between the US and Japan, I'm thinking of Brexit and around that, I'm thinking of you know, what might, might happen to Deutsche Bank and a few other things too. There are international leading indicators that suggest that the international economy is also going to weaken. The IMF said the growth will be lower ahead and they're worried about the risks internationally. But we're not really well prepared for that international crisis insofar that we can't really cut rates that far. We've got massive amounts of debt already. And therefore, if we're not very careful, like us or not, the international situation will sour and that will hit us over the head by a four by two. So I'm calling out policy failure. I'm calling out myopic strategies. And I'm calling out that ultimately it's the households who are going to pick up the tab either because they're going to have to bail out the banks again they're going to have to pay much higher mortgage repayments simply because you know, to get a property in a bigger mortgage these days. And even things like superannuation is not safe because superannuation has invested in a lot of the financial system. And if the financial system wobbles and, and, and gets weaker, that's even going to take finance uh, down. Therefore, it's going to take superannuation performance down. And whilst we might see the stock market performing quite well through a QE cycle, the experience in Japan and in the US is that it's not actually a coherent long-term strategy. You've got to get back to something else later. And that's the concern I have. We are taking a one-way walk down a cul-de-sac with myopic policies, with a government that is fixated on trying to fix the housing sector when that's not the real problem. And in the meantime, I think households are being caught in the crossfire. Yeah, it's, it's quite a sad thing. I, mean, I think it just goes to your point that uh, essentially what you're saying is we have – the the thing that we've invested in is housing, which has grown. So basically, we've grown consumption via credit into a non-performing or non-productive sector of the economy. Um, when, when really, when we had that through the resources boom, we could have just directed that money like, like they are in a way in China where they're just incentivizing everything R&D and innovation just for the sake of it. Um, and I, I guess that would be my, my own gripe as well with our economy is we don't actually make anything. Like we just sort of take it out of the ground, send it overseas, the money comes back, and then we put it into houses yep. in a nutshell. And then no, we have services that support that. You're right, exactly. It's, it's non-value adding. And, and the other point there is that, of course, it allows banks to grow so their balance sheets get ever bigger. That means they can lend more. That means they can actually write bigger mortgages. That means that they can actually inflate the housing cycle. So we have huge banks. You know, If you look at the revenue streams from 
the stock exchange, about 40% of, of dividends come from the finance sector even now, right? And they're a massive proportion of our overall stock market. But it is not productive. What it has done is become an end in itself. It's basically created a financial system that is, you know, I sometimes use the black hole analogy, right? We're we're right close to the event horizon where it sucks in absolutely everything else because banks will prefer to write mortgages compared with productive investment to businesses. Banks prefer to write mortgages because the risks are perceived to be very low. Probably investors think that's great. And if, if in fact, the rate of change of credit is positive, banks can easily make very big returns for investors. Not true, by the way, when the rate of momentum eases. And I talk about the credit momentum, right? When that's easing, as it is now, that's why banks are not performing very well at the moment. But the answer is not to create ever bigger banks and ever big mortgage balances. We need to put investment into productive things that actually can make Australia function better as a society and provide long-term um, in you know structural changes to the way we do business. Because we cannot survive the Asian century I don't think, just by digging up more of Australia and shipping it out. Mm. Just before I jump into your perspective on what you would do if you you were in charge, um, do you think we're most similar to Ireland of 2008 or 9 or America? Because this is something that has been spoken about a few times in interviews that you've done hmm. in sort of that network of people that, that do this sort of coverage. And the obvious thing that, that is thrown out is Ireland. So I'm just curious as to how probable is it that our economy goes the way of Ireland, i.e. a 10-year sort of stagnant economy? Yeah, so I think um, there are parallels with Ireland, there are parallels with the US, there are parallels with Japan, but Australia has its unique formulation. So I never say it's, you know, you can't just look over there and say it's going to be precisely the same, but there are some indicators. In Ireland, we had a very, very strong rise in property, property development, banks, and property prices. They were hit because of the international crisis that came in and basically um, blew that up. And as a result of that, property prices fell 40 to 50%. Ten years later, people are still in negative equity over there. And whilst they um, restructured the economy a little bit, they've still got significant issues. The US um, went through a major financial um, you know, correction because of the way that um, the mortgages in the US were packaged up and sold around the world and nobody knew whether they got a stinky mortgage or a, a clean mortgage. Uh, basically, liquidity disappeared because nobody trusted anybody. It became effectively a question of trust. And the property sector was the, if you like, tip of the iceberg, but it was much broader than that. And, you know, taking them a decade. The one I'm interested in is Iceland, because Iceland actually had similar issues. They had a massive international financial footprint and almost uh, nothing else, right? But what they did, they basically said, we can't go through this same rinse cycle again. So they allowed banks to crash and they actually didn't pay back some of the international investors whereas of course Ireland did so it's quite interesting because if you compare where we are with with you know those others we definitely have a massive financial sector we definitely have our own fate because we can take our dollar lower where of course Ireland is connected to the euro but by, by, by the way the euro gave them a lot of support as well but they did bail out their banks to save the international financial system mm -hmm. But I'm interested in, in, you know, 
where we are. The, the chances are that either from an international perspective, because of the international situation getting worse, or from our own making, we're going to have a very difficult two or three years. And we may wobble through with um, you know, stimulating the housing sector and creating an ever bigger debt bomb, but it's probably not going to solve anything because there's no real intent. So my sense is that you can learn from some of these other countries, but you can't read directly across but it's just worth rec recognizing that in Japan, where they've done QE and where they've got negative interest rates, the property sector over there is still well, well down from where it was. And they really have got an interesting economy, but it's, it isn't really based now on property. And I think that we have to find a way through. We have to redirect our economy away from the property sector, away from home prices, away from household debt into other sectors. But that's going to be tricky, right? Because effectively what it means is you have to allow home prices to continue to move down. And that means that many people will have issues with regard to negative equity and they'll basically see their property values fall. But that will ultimately solve housing affordability because it will get us back to some sort of more sensible ratio. At the moment, if you wanted to buy in Sydney or Melbourne, you need a loan to income ratio of seven, eight, nine times, which is way too high. It should be three to four times. And if you look at our total household debt to the other ratios around the world from GDP, you know, we're second behind Switzerland. So we're way off where we should be, in my view. So just doing more of the same isn't going to work. We need a different strategy. So step one, yeah. we have to allow the price to continue to go down. And that's going to be really painful. That's going to have a significant negative impact, but it's the right strategy. The second then is to start investing into things that can be more productive. And that means changing some of the lending rules, I think. I'm a great believer in, believe it or not, in free market activity, but it needs to be directed into the right areas. So either you do that by changing some of the ratios of the banks or you create a a national bank or you know a bank that's there to invest in infrastructure that we need in businesses that we need so that's the second leg of the stool the third one is i come back to the royal commission the royal commission highlighted the cultural norms in the banking system and how way off they were because they were only interested in making money profit was the driver never mind the customer and the third leg of the stool is to really shift the dial back to focusing in on customers. Remember what I said about looking at it from a customer perspective? Well, I can tell you that most of the banks today, despite what they may say, are still doing precisely what they were doing previously. A lot of lip service. But I think there's a cultural reform program there that right-sizes our banks, that puts them back, frankly, in their box and focuses on not making money from the banking system itself, but focuses on their enabling the broader economy to function appropriately. That's that's the agenda that I think we should be pursuing. Unfortunately, we won't because of the way the election went, but um, uh, yeah. that's just one of those things. It, there's a few points in there. I mean, Iceland is a super fascinating one. I was actually watching a documentary last night on um, not so much on Iceland, but on nuclear energy, and they're, they're building like one of the biggest uh, new, they call them EPR uh, nuclear plants mm. in world. I think they're, uh, the only one that compares is China at the moment, but China's also building 30 of them. Um, so so that Iceland's a super interesting one. I've been to Japan quite a lot. It's sort of a sad state of affairs over there. I, I've, I've been there twice in the last 18 months. That I don't see anything really productive, just anecdotally being done in their economy. I, I know speaking to locals, a lot of what happens there, and these are former investment bankers, a lot of what happens over there now is just selling bonds to Mrs. Wontanabe yeah. and, uh, 
and random energy products or exporting the their currency through tourism or you know the nitrogen project which is down here in Victoria so there's nothing really locally that's going on it's a bit of a bit of a sad one for that for that country which I love to visit but my question now is you know you mentioned the election if you were prime minister tomorrow what would the first 90 days look like for you? Initially, my question was if you were treasurer or RBA governor, but I think from what you're saying, there's a bigger, there's there's other things that need to be changed um, in industry as well. So I'm curious as to what would be the, f- the the top three or four policies that you would enact? Okay, so the first thing is, is, is what I call the vision thing, right? We need a new narrative about what Australia is and how we can actually make Australia great again, to quite a phrase, you know. <laughs> but seriously, we do, because the current yeah. strategies are going to, we're going to now probably swamp ourselves with more migration. We're going to continue the debt bomb, and we're just going to do the same old, same old. So the first thing is to recognize that that is not an acceptable strategy, and we need to actually go somewhere different. So that will be the first first step. The second step then is to put in place some supporting mechanisms for assuming that there's going to be a financial crisis, because at the moment, most of the people in power don't believe there's going to be any sort of financial crisis, or if there is, they can hopefully blame somebody else like the US or China or whatever, right? But the fact of the matter is we should be planning for that now, and we should be running some thinking about how to deal with it. The third is I would be looking for significant banking reform, as I've, as I've, I've said, because we, we've lost the plot in terms of our banking system here in Australia, I think, and not only here, but around the world. And I think we should be taking a lead in terms of banking reform. And then the last one is to think about how we can incentivize and assist particularly small businesses to be able to start firing because, you know, it's the small business sector, actually, that is the real potential engine room for growth and yet at the moment it always seems to me they're a bit of an add-on and you know everyone's focused on the big end of town etc etc so so some policies around that would also be very firmly on the agenda and then lastly deal with some of the real issues regarding to be international companies not paying the tax that they are due because at the moment the tax burden is unequally shared towards consumers it's the corporate sector who's not paying what they should yeah and I, I, there was two questions posed to me by the analysts at, at Go Markets around the minimum wage increase and rate cuts, and it, it seems clear based on what you're saying that the way forward, and what you have said in this interview, and probably what I would believe is the way forward is is definitely not with those sorts of minute changes. It is it is big wholesale visionary changes to the way that we do things in Australia. Yeah, but Australia is very bad at dealing with vision, right? So if you think of Labor, right, you know, okay, they were confused about what it, what the vision was with the list. They had, had a bit of it. But actually, that is what we need because otherwise what we'll end up doing is we'll go, we'll go down the MMT rabbit hole. In other words, well, we'll keep on borrowing because – now, we can go on because the government can always borrow and we'll just throw more money at the problem. Um, but unfortunately, I don't see the MMT route necessarily taking us to a very good place either. Um, I think people want simple answers. They want incremental changes. They expect the government to solve all their problems. So, you know, people still say, well, won't the, ba- won't the government solve the banking crisis if there is one? Well, actually, the banking crisis is solved by consumers poning out one way or the other. So, you know, that's not necessarily a, a good thing to hope for. Um but, yeah, I do think the vision thing is the problem. That's where I'd start. In a way, that's what DFA is trying to get to, I think, which is to say there are some big picture issues. There are some alternative ways of thinking. There's an alternative set of rules and logic about the way of things working. And once you start seeing that, 
the role of international finance, the fact that it sucks out the life out of economies around the world, it's become too big, too big for its own boots. That's a starting point for a different narrative. Mm. Before we jump into some rapid fire questions, I had one question um, from my from my good mate Ryan, who uh, who's a great analyst in and of himself, um, and he works specifically around the crypto space. And we've we've had multiple guests on the podcast around this. I guess his question was more around how likely is this to be a hedge against the system. But I, I was just curious to get your perspective on how you see cryptocurrency as a financial technology. I mean, I would not consider it, I, I don't think it's going to be an asset. I just merely think it's going to be a vehicle for a, a, a more product or consumer focused future. But where do you sit on cryptocurrency? Okay, so you have to split out the blockchain and the technologies which allow distributed things to happen, which is really powerful and can be applied in multiple ways. And the current cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, right, which are based on a speculation basis. There's nothing underpinning it, right? And, you know, you can see that from the way the price moves. I think you've also got to say that there will probably be cryptocurrencies that will actually be authorized by the reserve banks, you know, there will be a, a crypto Aussie dollar in due course, because I don't think that the banking system will allow the distributed system to occupy a very large space, particularly if international payments start being made with it. So I think there's a very strong future for blockchain. I think we have to be very careful about the cryptocurrencies that they're currently, not only because they can be manipulated, but they have exactly the same flaws as the other financial markets that they're part of, which is supply and demand and manipulation and current, you know, the exchanges are not transparent. And in a way, it's worse because there's nothing underpinning it at all. Um, some would say gold is better, but I won't go there. Um, because I actually don't know. I think gold is manipulated just as much as uh, many of the other, other assets. So I think people should be really cautious. And people, you know, can think take it as a speculative hit. But if you're thinking it's going to be the, f the liberating future of the whole of finance globally, uh, I'm more skeptical. But blockchain, absolutely, it will be harnessed. It will be used in multiple ways, from international payments through to ID, through to data sharing. And I think that's where a lot of the potential uh, leverage points will be. All right. Rapid fire questions for you. Uh, if you had to gift a book to the audience for Christmas, what would it be and why? I actually think Stephen Hawking's book about um, the way the universe works would be the one I'd go for. Because if you really want to stretch your mind and think differently about how everything is, you can't find better. <laughs> I like that one. It's a good book. Best purchase under $200. <laughs> um Okay, my set of nice little headphones. Set of nice little headphones. I feel like that is very, very common. Uh, but the, the specific headphones I'm thinking about are the AirPods. I don't know why, but Correct. everyone loves AirPods. Exactly. All right, last question for you. If you could have a billboard anywhere in Australia, where would it be first of all? So what would be your prime location and then what would you want to say on it? I'd see it outside um, the, uh, in Canberra, out, outside the Houses of Parliament, and it would simply say, remember, in the interests of the people. <laughs> I like that one. That's good. I've not heard about that one before. Look, Martin, thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. I know we've gone a little bit over time, but um, where can people find you on the internet? 
Okay, so digitalfinanceanalytics.com is my website. There's the blog there too. I'm also on YouTube. It's called Walk the World. That's my uh, YouTube channel, but you can also find it if you search on digital finance analytics. I'm also on Twitter as well. So I, I do use social media, but uh, the YouTube channel is probably a good place to start because you can see more than 800 shows that we've recorded now over the last few years, and we post every day. Yeah, and I'd thoroughly, thoroughly recommend that everyone go sign up to the YouTube page. It's um, it's it's a lot of fun. I love watching your videos. But thanks for coming on. Good to talk to you. It's been great fun. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes. And consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G O M A R K E T S. Until next time, thanks for listening.